myself again But it's the only way you're ever gonna learn You look back and it's all in the past Good evening, welcome to NUFC Matters with me, Steve Wraith, and it's uh, welcome to Ben Jacobs, who's covering for Ross Gregory for the next couple of Tuesday nights, and uh, he's been a busy guy today, so thanks uh, for jumping on, Ben, as always. And let's jump straight into this um, this Chelsea-Newcastle relationship, which, um, you, you, you know, you put a little piece up on Twitter uh, a couple of days ago just to, to explain why Amanda Stavely and Amir Dagadusi were were standing in the uh, the stands at uh, Stamford Bridge over the weekend. Uh, just want to explain that to people. Yeah, so Clear Lake Capital, who are the majority owners of Chelsea, have a relationship on the investment side with PIF, who are obviously the majority owners of Newcastle United, and in particular, Berdag Egbali, who works for Clear Lake and is on the Chelsea board, knows Amanda Staveley very well. So as I understand it, they were hosted by the Chelsea ownership group and it was more of a social. And this is what Todd Bowley, the Chelsea chairman and interim sporting director, is all about. He wants to change the way that the Premier League works and not make it about rivalry. I know Newcastle fans during the takeover were kind of constantly worried that the big six had an agenda against them. And some people listening will still make those arguments. But from Chelsea's perspective, who are in the big six, they see Newcastle as a club that they can work with on a football level and beyond. And Bowley comes from a mentality at Chelsea, which I think is very important, of working in a sport like baseball where you're a franchise. And when you're a franchise, you don't get relegated. So it always stays the same. The dynamic changes and the powers constantly oscillate due to the way that clubs trade. And as a consequence, there's more of an equality almost on the sporting side. So the LA Dodgers that Bowley's also a minority owner for will always be a bigger brand than other baseball clubs. But that doesn't mean that they'll constantly be the force in the sporting sense. And there's an appreciation that on a brand to brand level, you have to be friends whether you call that keeping your enemies close or simply a genuine friendship remains to be seen. But Bowley wants to kind of revolutionise the way that the Premier League clubs work together away from the football side. And that's why, for example, after the last Premier League stakeholders meeting, he hosted a dinner and he got roundly criticised for that because Chelsea fans said, why are you running around having dinners instead of signing players? But what happened at that dinner? He started the conversations to get Mark Kukurea to Chelsea and ended up getting a very good signing, who got an assist at the weekend from a corner with Khalid Koulibaly volleying in. So then coming back to the Newcastle-Chelsea relationship, it is very likely that there will be crossover outside of football between these particular characters. And the actual deal that's been done is between Kane, which is a bowley owned group along with Johnny Goldstein who also sits on the Chelsea board and PIF and it's a luxury hotel investment so it's a little bit broader than just Chelsea and Newcastle it's actually PIF and Kane but what that tells you is that the figures working at these two football clubs are also overlapping with other business interests and that can only benefit on a football side because if there's an opportunity for the two clubs to do something together on a commercial front, for example, they might go and play in a tournament together and both benefit from that. 
or alternatively, they may do something socially conscious together that helps grow the brand and the reputation. And then, of course, what the fans want to know about is, is there any transfer scope? And of course, if they're socializing, doing business together and they trust each other, eventually there will be a knock on effect on the football side where they might be able to do some business together. And we know that Newcastle are interested in a variety of Chelsea players. There's a growing feeling that Christian Pulisic on a loan might be possible. Callum Hudson-Odoi also on a loan. Newcastle, one of many clubs looking at him. I think Chelsea will allow the player to decide where he eventually goes. And Amando Broya as well. And when you talk about a loan deal, the relationship between the executives is key because with a younger player like Broya, he can be persuaded to go in a number of different directions. And if Chelsea feel that Newcastle is a good move, who knows, that might happen between now and when the window shuts, specifically on Broya. I think he'd rather stay at Chelsea, sign a new deal and be playing with increasing frequency. But if he's committed to Chelsea and doesn't now want to leave permanently, then that's when a loan comes back into the equation. And it's very finely balanced at this stage of the window because players that are not week in, week out like Broya are able to watch a few games, work out whether they are going to play that many minutes, and then they might U-turn on their position of wanting to go out on loan because they realise they're not playing as often as they thought. And that's when suddenly Bedag Bali can call Amanda Staveley and say, listen, the loan I thought was not on is back on. And that's why you get these last minute opportunistic deals during the window. So the relationship, I think, even though it is business orientated and distant at the moment from Chelsea and Newcastle, will inevitably over time have a football benefit that is mutually beneficial to both clubs. Mm, okay, very interesting. You mentioned, uh, you know, Callum Hudson Adoy. You've, uh, you've, you've said, you know, there is potential deals that could be done. Conor Gallagher is another one that's been mentioned. You've talked about uh, uh, Mando Brozier as well as a potential. Um, you know, who could move in this window? Could Newcastle be the the club of his choice? You know, if you had to be a betting man, Ben, which player would you say that Newcastle would probably, you know, have the best chance of getting from Chelsea in this window, whether it be on loan or whether it be a permanent deal? Yeah, I don't think it's always good to kind of put an odds or a percentage on it. My opinion is relatively worthless in that context. But what I would say is in terms of the likelihood of Chelsea letting a player go to Newcastle, Broyer is a possibility from Chelsea's end. The roadblock there is not at the club side is actually the player himself. He said very clearly earlier in the window that he either wants to move permanently, hence why he pushed for the West Ham move a few weeks back, or he wants to be integral at Chelsea. But now he sees where Chelsea are heading, and if Aubameyang arrives, he might now U-turn on that position and be persuaded to go out on loan. Chelsea would send him out on loan, I think, tomorrow, providing they get in another striker. So if Aubameyang joins, that becomes quite likely. From Newcastle's perspective, Everton and Leeds are the other clubs really pushing. And West Ham have got Skamaka now. It's not unthinkable that they would come in as well and say, if you wanted to join on a permanent deal, what about a loan? Because they could still do with some depth. But I think that Newcastle, Everton, Leeds, are the three main clubs pushing specifically for a loan deal for Amanda Broya. With Callum Hudson-Odoi, very likely, almost 100% that he ends up on loan somewhere. But Newcastle face competition and Dortmund are making a, a big push. So that's just player preference. And if he wants to stay in the Premier League or try a year abroad. And then Pulisic is a really interesting one because his preference is to stay at Chelsea rather than move to Newcastle. But only if he gets game time. And because it's a World Cup year, 
he might be persuaded and would tick a lot of boxes for Newcastle because they want that creative-minded player along with an attacker. Those are still the two priorities for Newcastle. Find a creative-minded player, hence their interest in James Madison, and find a striker to support Callum Wilson. So Pulisic would be excellent and might be persuaded to go out on loan. He said at the beginning of the window that he would prefer a move somewhere like Serie A and Juventus were the club that he was being touted with. But now we're getting into the desperation days of the window and he's a player that's guaranteed to start at a World Cup, but that doesn't mean because of that he can be complacent. So he wants the game time. He wants to rediscover his form. And I think it would be a good fit at Newcastle United. So there is a genuine growing feeling that as the window ticks down, if Chelsea get in who they want to bring in, that Pulisic to Newcastle or on a loan elsewhere, Serie A could still make a move for him, is very, very likely. So there's three players there that Newcastle will genuinely believe that they can get. And I think Broya's the one that they desperately would like. Uh, Hudson-Odoi is kind of like a bonus, but there's a lot of competition. And uh, Pulisic might be the kind of surprise loan signing that if Newcastle can pull off, uh, could really add to their squad. Mm, okay, well, we'll watch with uh, interest in, in how this all develops. Um, Chelsea making inroads today into the transfer market themselves, and that could free up a, a, a player. Obviously, we know that there's been a, another bid gone in for, for Anthony Gordon, a player that Newcastle were rumoured to be interested in as well, believed to be around about 40 to £45 million. Pounder. Anthony Gordon still on Newcastle's radar? Yes, I know, Ben. Yeah, I think so. Other than the fact that if the price is 50 million, they've been very prudent in the market. But if we're only talking about targets that Eddie Howe would take and bite your hand off for, then absolutely. And uh, there's a reason why the initial Chelsea interest was briefed, if you like, to the media at the Everton side. At the same time, it wasn't just a coincidence that Amanda Staveley is standing right next to Berdag Egbali. That didn't come from the Chelsea end. It, it broke at a time when Chelsea had a match. And that tells you that Everton are tactically putting that information out there because they want Newcastle to know and possibly Tottenham Hotspur as well. And if Everton are to sell and get their 50 million, then they may need a bidding war. Chelsea are not too far off at 45 million. And I know fans listening will say, well, why don't you just bid five more? Five is nothing in the transfer market, but it can be under things like financial fair play. It can be under overall transfer budgets because clubs are looking cumulatively. So if Chelsea still want De Jong for Fana, then 45 million on Gordon might be affordable and 50 million might not under financial fair play because it's a lot, a lot of money collectively, cumulatively, rather than just looking at its own entity. And also remember that when you negotiate, you can't just be the club that goes up and up and up and up. So if Chelsea started at 35, then 40, then 45, if they go up to 50, why are Everton and Leicester as well not just going to say, well, let's trial up for 55 or 60 or 65 because they just keep going up. You can always reject a bid in a transfer window, wait a day, and then go back to the club and say, actually, we've reconsidered. So if Chelsea constantly go up, that is the danger, that they're just seen as the club that constantly come back with a new bid. So then you don't accept a third bid, you wait for a fourth bid and a fifth bid and so on. From Newcastle's perspective, their initial bid for Gordon was £35 million. It was dismissed. They were told he wasn't for sale. But the fact that Chelsea's bid at 40 million originally was put out there publicly whilst they were playing and standing next to the Newcastle owners is a tactic to see whether Newcastle bite. So the interest is real. 
And let's see now whether Newcastle try and return. Uh, the challenge for Newcastle is that if they're up against Chelsea, I think Gordon picks Chelsea. And uh, I still reiterate what I said before, that Newcastle have been more sensible uh, than Chelsea in terms of how high incrementally when a bid has been rejected, they're prepared to return for. Chelsea have been ambitious and have not been afraid to go up in increments of five to seven million over a 24, 48, 72 hour period. So uh, Chelsea are the favourites if Everton are prepared to sell. Uh, there is still a question mark over that. Uh, but Gordon's head has been turned by this Chelsea interest. So I think that he would like the move, much like Fafana would like the move. Uh, and therefore, Newcastle are going to struggle both financially um, and in terms of their pitch to the player uh, to actually persuade him now to join Newcastle United over Chelsea if they return. Um, but the interest away from the finances, away from the Chelsea competition uh, is still very, very real. Uh, Newcastle really like the player. OK, um, Mad Mag Marks has been any sign of outgoings as we still have too many players for a 25-man squad as things stand? I don't know a great deal about Newcastle's outgoings, if I'm particularly honest. It's not something I've made inquiries about, certainly over the last week. I would have thought that the main priorities are Matt Ritchie, Jamal Lewis and maybe Federico Fernandez, and that would clear a little bit of squad space and wage space as well. Of course, Newcastle have only managed to shift a few fringe players at the moment. Uh, you could probably argue too that um, beyond Jeff Hendrick uh, joining Reading and uh, Kieran Clark, who's on loan, I believe, at Sheffield United, and then Hayden went to Norwich as well, I believe too. So uh, those three um, are the main ones that Newcastle wanted to uh, resolve. Uh, Dubravka is an interesting one, of course, and it remains to be seen whether he's looking for more regular football with Pope looking like the number one. But I think the, the main work will be around Richie Fernandez and uh, Lewis. And I haven't heard a great deal of uh, offers yet for any of those uh, players with uh, Matt Ritchie in particular. Um, the um, main thing that I was aware of maybe uh, a week or so ago uh, was a little bit of interest from one or two championship clubs. Spezia in Serie A had made an inquiry as well, but I was under the impression that the player uh, was not interested uh, around moving uh, abroad at this stage. So uh, that's one just to keep uh, across, I suppose. Uh, and interest will grow over the next few days. Uh, but it's a good point well made that uh, Newcastle... Uh, do have quite a big squad at the moment. Uh, their priority is not on outgoings in the next few days. It, it's on scrambling to find that creative-minded player uh, and that striker. Uh, but they're very much aware of that, that they have still got a bit of, and I don't mean this disrespectfully, so maybe it's a, a poor choice of word, but there is still some dead wood that in an ideal world, uh, they would like not to be at the club come September the 1st. Mm, OK. Um, evening, Stephen. Ben says, Jordy Tune for Life, who does Ben see Newcastle sign before the window closes? Thanks in advance, he says. I think Broya is a very real possibility if a loan materialises because Newcastle have tracked him all windows. So definitely uh, one to keep across. I think that Newcastle uh, will be happy with one loan and one signing. Uh, Paqueta has been floating around and is uh, growing in uh, rumour mill, if you like. Uh, I've still been told over and over again that this 30-odd million price tag that is allegedly cut price is nonsense. And he's a 50 million quid player, all in, as a minimum. 
So that's something to bear in mind. But a lot's been made of the a Bruno friendship with Paqueta, and it's clear the player wants to come to the Premier League. Uh, but I think the most telling point on that alleged lower price tag is, come on, if Paqueta wants to leave and the price tag is 30-odd million, that's one of the bargains of the window. Why is nobody placed a formal offer? And that probably tells you that the negotiation with Leon is a little bit more complicated. So uh, one to keep an eye on for sure, because the Newcastle interest is very real. But as I've explained many times before on this show, there are financial considerations and negotiation considerations with Leon. And the incoming majority owner at Leon, John Textor, an American, is pretty bullish that he thinks Leon can challenge PSG. So Paqueta would like a move somewhere. Jean-Michel Olas says there's lots of offers, but Textor himself is far more staunch in the belief that maybe the player should just be forced to stay. So let's see whether anything moves on that in the next few days. Uh, but I think that Newcastle are monitoring the situation and are talking to the agent to see whether the player would be prepared to move to Newcastle. Arsenal are doing pretty much the same thing as well. And I think we'll see some more movement on that over the next two weeks. It wouldn't remotely surprise me if Newcastle try their luck late in the window uh, when they know that Leon have that kind of do or die decision to make because there's no time to dilly dally left in the window. And that's what's great as a journalist, by the way, and a fan at this stage of the window that uh, we no longer have this what if X, what if Y. There's 16 days left of the window. Everyone has to move fast whether it's a dragged out De Jong deal with Manchester United and Chelsea hoping something might come of it, or whether it's a last minute swoop from Newcastle's point of view for Paqueta or Broya. There's no time anymore for clubs to play the game, to reject two bids and wait for a third one. You've got to move fast. And therefore, if there is a genuine appetite of Leon to let Paqueta go and a genuine appetite of Newcastle to pay, I would have thought 50 million all in then if they go for it now, we'll know the answer very quickly. So I don't think that's impossible. I don't think Broly is impossible. And those are the ones I think to be watching from the perspective of Newcastle United right now. A couple of political questions uh, coming in. Clint says, uh, I'd like to know Ben's feelings on Sky. Happy to show Saudi boxing, yet Newcastle ownership gets brought up uh, on a regular basis. And Tom Lynch says, thoughts on Adam Crafton stirring the pot. Reckons Majd al-Sura, uh, including Vision 2030 is proof that Newcastle are directly owned by the Saudi state. I mean, look, this is constantly going on. And maybe this ties back to what you say about, you know, at some stage, you know, PIF coming out and, and speaking. Yeah, I mean, I've always said from the word go that the first thing PIF need to do is sit in front of the media and engage with Newcastle United fans directly. And the reason for that is because if Yasser Al-Rumian does that, then from a fan perspective, there can be better engagement. And then from a media perspective, instead of us digging to try and find answers, the representatives are right in front of us. And then they will give their answer. And then it is for everybody to hear firsthand what that answer is. And the media will look very silly after a while, asking and asking and asking and asking again if the answers are just given to our faces. It's then up to us to determine whether those answers are genuine. And we have a responsibility to either verify or disprove. And if an answer is given directly to our face that we disprove with facts, 
then the fan base can then say, wait a minute, maybe the ownership group misled us and vice versa. If they give a lucid explanation as to what happened in the takeover and why there is appropriate degrees of separation, at that point, if the media keep asking the same questions when a fair and reasonable and in-depth answer has been given, then to be perfectly honest with you, we're the ones that look very stupid because that shows that we are ignoring information that's been given to us. And that's how you move this on. But we're in a situation at the moment where we're trying to find answers and PIF are not openly speaking. Sometimes they talk to you off record, but not openly. And that creates different channels, different sources to try and put the full picture together. So I'm not being critical of PIF or Yasser Al-Rumian. I am trying to push them as a journalist, of course, I would like that. But even with the fan base to talk, because if they talk, we will get these answers. And then with Adam Crafton, great guy, good journalist. I haven't seen what he said about specifically Majid al Saroor because I've been traveling and I've been busy all day. But what I can tell you is that Majid al Saroor is part of Vision 2030. He is part of the Saudi Gulf Federation as well. And he was late to the Newcastle United board. He wasn't part of anything when the takeover actually first happened, but he will have gone through the owners and directors test. So naturally, if the Premier League are now content that there is no link between the Saudi government and Newcastle United through PIF, they will have run their due diligence specifically on Majid al-Sarur and concluded exactly the same thing. Uh, Sarur worked under Yasser al-Rumian and still does in a golf capacity. And I know him as well, by the way, pretty well, because I used to edit a golf magazine when I was working out in the Middle East and go frequently over to Saudi Arabia, where I would deal with Yasser al-Rumian and Majid al-Sarur. So I know a fair amount about him and his background and his role. But the reality is this, that when anybody with a connection outside of Newcastle United Football Club is scrutinized, in the context of Saudi Arabia, there will always be crossover. And the reason for that is because a number of different people, Yasser al-Rumian, Majid al-Saroor in particular, they hold titles. That is how the MENA region works. They get given some actual titles. They get given some tokenistic titles. They get given some things out of respect. They get given some things in practice. And this is how business works out there. So. With Vision 2030, there is literally a dual position for some roles where you have a day-to-day. -day. I have a friend by the name of Mark Archer who works under PIF on the Red Sea Project, nothing to do with Newcastle or sport. And he is one of the strategic, creative and marketing leads. And there is an identical position for him from a senior Arabic, sometimes royal side that holds the same job title. And when they announce something, he does the day-to-day, -day, he does all the strategy, and then the senior figure comes in and does the press conferences and effectively takes a huge amount of the glory. And that is kind of how it works. So I wouldn't read too much into job titles. I would read into reality. And Vision 2030 is so all-encompassing that you can make arguments both ways. Of course, the government control Vision 2030. If there's someone involved in Vision 2030 related to Newcastle United Football Club, then you can make a connection. 
But what is the practical aspect of that connection? Because you can bet your bottom dollar that it was declared to the Premier League when he did the owners and directors test before joining Newcastle United. So is there influence? Is he able to take a government vision and then come into Newcastle and impact Newcastle based upon that government vision? Or are there too many layers of separation? And Newcastle have always argued that there are too many layers of separation. So it's the same argument with the very genesis of the takeover that, yes, absolutely, PIF has government decreed members on its board. Absolutely, yes, MBS runs PIF. Absolutely, yes, PIF's money comes from the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund, which is a bank that only looks after government money. And absolutely, yes, MBF is extraordinarily powerful and has control over a variety of different things. So that is why a lot of us as journalists were saying all of that. But we have to also accept as responsible journalists, even if people argue conspiracy theories, even if people argue that the Premier League eventually accepted the reality of the situation because the piracy situation was resolved, we have to accept as journalists that the Premier League did their tests. And in doing their tests, whatever the backdrop, we're beyond that now. And after those tests were completed, the determination was that there is enough separation between government and Newcastle United via PIF ownership of Newcastle United. And if there is that satisfaction with PIF, then how you can then argue there shouldn't be a satisfaction with one board member that's the CEO of the Saudi Gulf Federation, I don't think you can make that argument. There has to be a consistency. What you can say is that I challenge the argument of the Premier League because I think that there is not enough transparency and accountability as to what happened. And I think we all, whatever side of the coin we're on, want to know that. What happened with the takeover? What happened with the U-turn? What happened with the 18 months? Where was the scrutiny? And whatever side you're on, whether you celebrate the fact that it got done or whether you think that there was something untoward, whether you are happy with the lack of transparency because the takeover got done or whether you think more transparency is needed. I think we all agree, whatever side of the coin we're on, that we would love to know everything that happened in that 18 months. But on a very base level, I suppose my point is, if PIF are good enough for Newcastle United, who are heavily ingrained in Vision 2030, then what is the problem with Majid Al-Sarur? I haven't read what Adam said. I think he's a good journalist, a phenomenal journalist. Um, so, you know, I, I will reserve specific judgment on what he has said uh, to actually look at that uh, and the specific context. But, but that is my general reaction that the tests were done with PIF. Um, we need accountability over what happened there. We need accountability and we need um, Yasser Arumian to speak to the media and to the fan base so these questions can be put directly to them. Uh, but if PIF is seemingly at the moment good enough for the Premier League, then why isn't Majid al Sarur? And I probably can't comment any further than that before reading the piece. Mm. Okay, great stuff, though. Good answer. And uh, thanks for the questions that are flying in tonight. And uh, 470 watching, please do hit the like button. And uh, yeah, look. Keep, keep the questions coming in. Got half an hour to go. I'll give a push to the sponsors. A uh, big thank you to Skips and Bins. Telephone 0800 25 Email inquiries at skipsandbins.com. Website www.skipsandbins.com. Easy contact free and pay as you go waste collection. Thanks to Darren Baldwin Funerals, Independent Funeral Director. 
304 Old Durham Road, Gateshead is where you can find him or telephone 01914782730. Email Darren at darrenbaldwinfunerals.co.uk or go to his website, darrenbaldwinfunerals.co.uk. Thanks to Garden Feeling Dispensary, CBD Hemp and Cannabinoid Specialists, www.gohd.com. And thanks to Mr. Vicky's Sources, Handmade in Cumbria. And you can find them at mrvickies.co.uk or by calling 01768. 210102. Thanks to Away Day Clothing and to Media Arts. Thanks to qtechshop.co.uk. And uh, they are the makers of pool tables and snooker tables and walls in Newcastle. And the guys who run our website, nufcmatters.com. If you want to subscribe, hit the NUFC Matters logo in the bottom right hand corner. You can subscribe for free. We still do seven shows a week. Hit the thumb up to like the video, click share to share to your social media and drop into the comments box to speak to like-minded Newcastle fans or to pose a question. We're also available as a podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean and the rest usually goes up 24 hours after the show. If you want to join the channel, hit join underneath the video and you can make a small donation or you can go to the website nufcmatters.com and go to membership and get a cup, a pen, a scarf, a membership card and entry into the monthly draw or use your smartphone Put your camera over the QR code. It'll take you straight there. And we also give away a car sticker for free to anyone who is a subscriber. Simply email john at nufcmatters.com and he will post you one out. We also support the food bank on this channel. nufcfansfoodbank.co.uk is where you can make a virtual donation. Peter Beersley Soccer School is still running through August. It's still time to get the kids enrolled. Go to peterbeardsleysoccerschool.com for more information. And the Callum Wilson shirt is still up for grabs Thursday. This finishes. I've stuck the link in the chat. Football prizes. Thanks very much for donating the shirt in. And uh, yeah, nice little prize that if you uh, want to get involved and win it. Okay, question for Ben, says Michael. I'm about 60 minutes into watching the full game for Leicester versus Arsenal. Tielemans is very invisible. Yeah, it was great last week. Is this typical of his consistency levels? Newcastle, of course, linked with Tielemans and y- yourself on this show has said on, on numerous occasions, he's probably the one who Leicester would probably let go first if they had to let someone go. I think so. And Leicester are aware that the contract situation puts them in a position where if they don't let him go now, then they may not get any money for him. And that is the challenge. Probably around 30 million is the fee. Some would argue 25 might do it. And as we get later in the window, the price might drop if Leicester genuinely want to sell. I wouldn't say Tielemans is streaky or particularly invisible in games, but away from home, he has, statistically speaking, had less of an impact than at home. Arsenal just played very well against Leicester as well, so it's tough to judge some of the players. But generally speaking, he has worked on his stamina and his athleticism. He tries to get box to box and he tracks back a little bit more now. The defensive aspect of his game is certainly the area that could need the most improvement if he was to be utilised in a game management sense as a deeper lying midfielder or as a more traditional central midfielder. Whereas if he's allowed to play an attacking midfield, it's not always been required of him to defend because remember Leicester over the years that he's played at the club have had some very, very good deeper lying midfielders. So if an Ndidi is fit, for example, then it gives Tielemans a bit more freedom. But away from home, I think when sides break fast and play direct progressive passing, that's where sometimes he gets pushed back and out of position and can be invisible in the games. But Leicester generally have struggled and are thin in an attacking sense. And Jamie Vardy still hopefully at his peak, but Iheanacho, 
Perez have been streaky and they've been reliant on Madison, who was Leicester's best player last season, which is why I think that genuinely Leicester don't want to sell him to Newcastle United. And that puts Tielemans in a difficult position because if he's playing in a more balanced team with two wide weapons and in the sort of older days when Leicester were really free-flowing, a Pereira before he got injured, bombing forwards, it makes the pitch as big as possible and it gives you a lot of balance out wide. And that means that then when it's worked in centrally, on a counter-attack or a move, because you've got that balance and those options and the pitches as wide as possible, players get stretched. And that's where Tielemans really benefits because he can make runs into the box and he can control the middle of the park because everyone's stretched. And right now, Leicester are not having as much of the ball. Arsenal were dominating the midfield. He was having to do a lot more defending and that's why he was a bit more invisible. But on his day, in a functional team that's balanced and has a bit more of the ball, I certainly wouldn't call him invisible. No, okay, good stuff. Next question, uh, says Gary to Leicester Connection again. Can Ben see Leicester selling some of the blue chip brigade like Madison for Farner and Vardy to rebuild for the future? They need to rebuild for the future. That's a good point. The squad is thin at the moment. They're going to have to find a long-term solution to Jamie Vardy. I don't think they'll sell Vardy. I think he'll end up leaving on his own terms. I know there's some speculative links with Manchester United. Nothing in that at the moment. If anything, Vardy might get a one-year contract extension at Leicester. But there has to be that long-term strategy to find a solution to Jamie Vardy. And at the moment, it isn't 100% Ian Acho or somebody like an Jose Perez. So, yeah, they're going to have to find somebody to replace Vardy, but I don't think that is an imminent signing. And the other thing with Vardy, uh, much like Schmeichel, is just wages, that every time Leicester did well, it's brilliant, but it came with an increase and an increase and an increase, and you can't just decrease because Leicester finish in the top half, because that's also worthy of a bonus, because it's Leicester City Football Club. It's not Man City or Liverpool. So, if you qualify for Champions League, it's astonishing. You get an incredible bonus. If you miss out on Champions League and have Europa League, you get an incredible bonus. If you finish in the top half, you get a normal bonus and wages have gone up. And that's why even with a Madison, but definitely a Vardy, uh, Leicester are looking to lower their wage bill over time. But I don't see them doing too much in this window uh, as a trio. I think it's one from the three. And at the moment, that's looking most likely to be Wesley Fofana to Chelsea. Okay, interesting stuff. Uh, any idea, says Roger, what Eels appointment could do with any American players or commercial contracts? Well, with players, clubs don't just sign based on nationality for the sake of it, but he knows the MLS market. And it wouldn't surprise me with PIF looking to make more of a group mentality like we see with the City Group if Newcastle find themselves twinned with an MLS club in a strategic partnership. There's some good players out there in MLS as well on the younger side that Newcastle could sign up and loan back and then potentially look at in a year or two. Vasquez is one at Cincinnati to keep an eye on. I mentioned that Leeds were looking at him. You have to understand that when you sign an MLS player, an American anyway, that there can be work permit issues if they've not been capped from their country. And that's why it's more long-term than short-term as far as any potential recruitment is concerned. But commercially speaking, of course, Newcastle don't only just want to grow in the MENA and specifically Saudi Arabian region. They also want to expand in America. And if they were, for example, to pull off a loan for Christian Pulisic, then that's an instant win. And then Eels can build upon that because Pulisic is hugely marketable in the North America region. And the other thing Newcastle will be looking at is that there's a World Cup in 
five years time or four years time actually in America and Canada and Mexico. So it's natural that on a domestic level, clubs are going to want to benefit from that, go over for pre-season there more and help grow the Premier League. And Newcastle United are a part of that. And if everything goes according to plan, where are Newcastle going to be come that World Cup? Well, I think people at the club would say at least in European football, if not better. So then if they've enshrined themselves in a big seven, inclusive of Newcastle, or hey, maybe it's a big six and I'm being flippant here, but Manchester United are no longer in it. And that is where they are at the moment. But as a brand, they're always going to be in that big six. So it's a big seven, effectively. I'm making a bad joke, effectively. And I'm going to presume everyone is laughing, even though you can yes, never hear. <laughs> but no, I mean, look, in four years' time, Newcastle would expect to be one of the big seven, assuming that the other six are still there. So then in a World Cup year, you have to look at North America, not just Saudi Arabia or the MENA region. And the final thing with Eels to just reference with America in answer to your question is less about the commercial side and the player side and more just about the modernization of the football club. So what he learned at Atlanta around things like digital evolution and fan engagement is going to be vital too to modernizing the football club. And I'm sure that over the next four years or so before that World Cup, he'll also be looking to improve the fan engagement side of the football club. And there's a lot of learnings from MLS because they're better, I would argue, than the Premier League. And if you can bring that to Newcastle United, uh, the fan base will benefit and very quickly. Okay, great stuff. With the NUFC owners doing business with Chelsea's Goldstein outside of football, does Ben think this could lead to some favourable football dealings, says Len? Yeah, I suppose we mentioned this before. It's not just about back scratching on the football side, but when you're friends with someone and you know how they do business outside of football, if you then do want to do business in football, you trust them, you've worked with them. It helps with negotiating. Right now, Todd Bowley doesn't know who he's dealing with. So when he sits in front of Laporta at Barcelona, he cannot possibly know if he's being played because he's never dealt with Barcelona and Laporta before. Now, he is being briefed. So it's like when a politician takes a meeting. They cannot know everything, but they have civil servants that do the due diligence, hand him a document. He consumes that information and he sounds like an expert in the meeting. But he'll want to have his own sense, as will the new sporting director when eventually appointed at Chelsea, of what the reality is. And there's a lot of people in football that would say the same, that Laporta can be two-faced and how he acts in public is not the same as in private, which is why even to a more experienced negotiator like Manchester United's football department, they're frustrated. So the advantage of knowing Amanda Staveley, the relationship between Clear Lake and PIF helps because they've got a much stronger sense if they choose to negotiate of where they're heading and if they are being played and what the likelihood is. And Bowley's very amenable. He's very honest. He's very upfront. He doesn't want any nonsense. And I think that the relationship with Clear Lake and PIF will help. So if they do start negotiating at the table for players, if it advances, you know that there's something genuine in it because they're not there to mess each other about. OK, anything on uh, Goncalo Ramos, of course, another player, <laughs> another one of the 680, 90 players that Newcastle have been linked with. Uh, seems seems stronger rumours that he's going to go to another Premier League club. Yeah, I, I think so. There's a lot of speculation over Gonzalo Ramos. It's not just a Premier League club. Uh, by the way, PSG are interested as well. Wolves are the club that Newcastle in the Premier League would have to be the most wary of. And the reason for that is because they've been tracking him for uh, quite some time. 
and Bruno Larger has called Ramos personally to find out whether this deal is possible. And Fosun, by the way, are suddenly backing Wolves. Nunez is another really good signing that's just come off. So they're going to escalate that and see whether anything's possible. PSG are tracking the player as well. But there's certainly some substance to the Newcastle interest. And I suppose whilst we're on transfers, it may have been asked in another question. There's a very real chance too that Newcastle United get Jawa Pedro too. And there's a bid be made that has been rejected. I believe only a verbal bid, by the way. So there's often some confusion over this particular kind of bid because when it's verbal, it can be denied by both the buyer and the seller. That's a little known fact about the transfer window. And it's also why after a few bids, as it gets verbal, you never really know if it's a second bid, a third bid, a fourth bid, because it's not in the interest of Newcastle United to put out there, oh yeah, it was our seventh bid and it's got rejected. That's bad for negotiation. It's also not in the interest of the seller to say, oh yeah, we rejected seven bids because they don't want to show their hand. And therefore, there's a grey area. But my understanding is that Newcastle value the player under 20 million. And from a Watford perspective, they want 20 to 23 million inclusive of add-ons. So there's work to be done on that one. But again, there is very real interest. So there is a chance that Newcastle will pursue that deal. If I was Newcastle as well, I've said this before, I'd be very disappointed as a fan. Um, I, I don't mean to be detrimental against the football department. They're the experts. I'm not. Uh, but I still do not understand why they didn't go for Maxwell Cornet. And uh, the reason I mention that is because Maxwell Cornet was also 17.5 million, the uh, alleged fee that Newcastle United bid and got rejected for Jawa Pedro. And I know that 17.5 million was a release clause and Newcastle thought it was too high but they were offered Maxwell Cornet earlier in the window uh, when they still had other priorities and targets and they didn't pursue him. And then later in the window, they never returned to the deal. And I'm surprised by that because I think Cornet and Emmanuel Dennis, by the way, too, uh, who's now gone to Nottingham Forest, uh, would have both been good and relatively economical options for Newcastle United. Let's not forget, Dennis scored 10 Premier League goals for Watford last season. But for whatever reason, not a fit. Um, Dennis may be not the right dressing room personality um, that um, Newcastle wanted. And as soon as the player leaves, uh, you find out these things. Uh, and apparently a lot of people were quite glad to see him go at Watford. So maybe Newcastle were ahead of the game on that one. And uh, it's a bullet dodged. Uh, but with Cornet, I'm a little bit surprised uh, that Newcastle didn't come more seriously in for the player at any point during the window. But hey, that's just my view. I'm not Dan Ashworth. I'm not Eddie Howe. Uh, they may know, know they may know something I don't. And uh, let's see where it goes with Pedro. Uh, but there is certainly some substance there. Okay. And uh, next question. Uh, let's go with this one. Uh, Michael says, question about Ben, which teams do you feel will be most active in the last few weeks of the window? And which do you think are done with the incomings? God, I hope Leicester are the most active of everyone. We need some fresh <laughs> I bet you do. <laughs> I think that in a signing sense, you're going to see Newcastle go for two maximum. Whether or not that counts as active remains to be seen. It's funny, isn't it? Because if you talk about needing two and how long they've needed two for, if they sign two, fans won't say that's active. But if you talk about bringing in two names in 16 days, that's pretty active. So... They're one to look at still. Chelsea, I think, will be the most active, along with Manchester United. Uh, Liverpool won't necessarily sign anyone, despite recent injuries. 
Uh, Manchester City still might bring in another left back, by the way. Uh, Borna Sosa is on their radar, even though Sergio Gomez has arrived today. Uh, he's more one for the future, even though he's got a squad number and may not now be loaned out. That was the original plan, though. So I think that Leicester, hopefully, uh, Newcastle will sign two if everything goes according to plan. And then the most active will be Chelsea and Manchester United. Leeds are in a position where they'd love to be active in the market as well. So it's a big week ahead for them or a big couple of weeks ahead. So uh, don't rule out them being active. Uh, and, you know, Forest, I kept saying, uh, have almost done their business and almost done their business. And then every single day they seem to unveil two signings. So it feels like Forest have got about three teams that could compete in the Premier League. Uh, surely you would expect them to slow now over the next 16 days. But who knows? They're just making signings for fun. So you can never discount. And West Ham still need a couple. They're in desperate need of uh, centre-back. It looks like they've got that over the line um, in the next uh, day or two. So that's good news, but they could still sign a striker as well. Yeah, OK. Uh, will the spectacular commercial success of Aramco in recent months help Newcastle United, says John? Well, Aramco is a really interesting one because if you base it on the Vision 2030 strategy, then they shouldn't be factored in because the whole point is generating business and publicity around non-oil and gas ventures. And obviously, Aramco don't tick that box. But the fact that that market has picked up might allow scope to go against the Vision 2030 strategy. And let's be very clear here that Vision 2030 and Newcastle are not directly tied. So there will be a crossover. But that doesn't mean that Newcastle cannot touch things that don't fit in with Vision 2030. But I think when you look at commercial deals, it will be more about, I suppose, Newcastle trying to put front and centre in branding and in shirts uh, things that do benefit Vision 2030. So Noor is a good example of that. Doing shopping Amazon style helps Vision 2030. Why? Because it generates business in Saudi Arabia. And as Noor expands, it generates jobs in Saudi Arabia. And if Newcastle merchandising and deals are a part of that, then that's win-win all round. And it ticks a box because it helps improve the job market in Saudi. And it helps improve the, I suppose, branding of Noor, which may one day go outside of Saudi Arabia and the Middle East and North Africa. So Aramco is always one to watch because they're heavily invested in sport. And if Newcastle United reach a Champions League, Aramco are going to want a part of that. But right now, I don't think there's any direct benefit. But in the long term, uh, healthy Aramco and industry in that sector will one day allow Newcastle United, no doubt, to do business with them. Mm, okay, interesting. Uh, ben, what is happening with Manchester United? They're looking bad. I hope they stay down the bottom, says Tom Dixon. He also asks, uh, do you think um, that Neymar will remain at PSG this season? Yeah, I'll, I'll come on to those two. By the way, I never answered the boxing question, which Aramco in sport tend to be involved in and golf as well. And I don't want to be seen to dodge that because people will say, well, oh, Ben Jacobs answers one question. It was just remiss because <laughs> I went on a rack. Well, another question. If you ask me two political questions at once, you can't expect me to give a short answer. But just whilst it's on my mind. So I think that everyone looks at things through the prism of their club or their sport. And it was really interesting that when Live Golf came along, golf fans were saying, why is everyone attacking Live Golf and not Newcastle United? And my eyes are like popping out my head and I'm saying, 
every single Newcastle fan will tell you the opposite. Why is everyone attacking Newcastle United and not live golf? And then with boxing, everyone's saying, why is Sky promoting Saudi Arabian sponsorship in a sport, but then attacking Newcastle United? And similarly, boxing fans are out there on social media saying the exact opposite. The algorithm gives you what you want to see. It reacts to what you're talking about. So if you're a Newcastle United fan, you'll see like-minded content around Newcastle United. And if you're a boxing fan, you'll see boxing content. And that's why we get these competing narratives where on social media, boxing fans moan and say, everyone's scapegoating us. Darts fans moan and say, everyone's scapegoating us. Newcastle United fans moan and say, everyone's scapegoating us. So there is that conversation around there. But what I would say is that there is a big difference between sponsoring a sports event in Saudi Arabia that is a one-off versus sponsoring a tour that is consistent and you are running versus owning a football club. And you can make different arguments for different things. Uh, One-off might be morally acceptable because the league needs the money or wants to trial it or wants to go there once, but they're not surrendering their entire identity. And other people will say, well, they still shouldn't be doing it. And then with a live golf format, Saudi Arabia are literally funding it and running it and trying to challenge the PGA and European tour. So then you can say, well, that's ballsy. That's a new era. But you can also say there's more scope for sports washing. And then with Newcastle United, it's ownership. So you can say as long as the ownership protects the Newcastle brand, it's good all round. It's good for Newcastle. It's good for the Premier League. And it's good to have competition. But you can say you've got to be wary around sports washing and making sure there's transparency and integrity. So they're three different things. And each of them needs scrutiny. But make no mistake, the criticism is there. You just might not see it because you're not looking at every boxing podcast, every boxing social media debate, every boxing TV show. But they're not like for like. You've got to have more finesse and education around the fact that a one-off is not the same as football club ownership. Football club ownership is not the same as a funded tour that is trying to knock the PGA Tour and the European Tour off its pedestal. So doing that due diligence is really important. Then with Manchester United, I think that there's no foundation to the club. The great thing about Newcastle is it's new owners, so they can have a new strategy and they can, with that new era, plan and the appointments that they make are new. And with new comes a bit of instability and doubt and uncertainty and risk reward. But you plan over five, 10 years and you implement. And if it works, you succeed. And if it doesn't work, at least you've had a plan. And why have you got a plan? Because you've employed Ashworth, new, how, new, Staverley, PIF, new money, new sponsors. And I think that was the frustration under Mike Ashley that there was no plan. The club was in limbo. Manchester United are in strategic limbo. They're living off their history. They're dining off their past. And if that doesn't change, they're going to make the same mistakes over and over again. And the problem with Manchester United is there's a divided board. There's a divided strategy. There's a divided dressing room. And if you flash back 10, 15 years, it was one of the best clubs in the world. It was a brand that automatically generated business. It was a club that automatically had success under Sir Alex Ferguson. There were pathways from the youth to the first team, and there was a great crop of new talent. And they were just automatically, on every level, competing. And then, of course, other clubs caught up. And the whole landscape of football changes every five or ten years. And Manchester United have not moved. And consequently... There is now a divided dressing room 
There is politics at the football club. There's the Ronaldo situation. And every manager that comes in at the moment is doomed to fail. What was the point of employing Ralph Ranić if he didn't leave Manchester United a strategy? And if Eric Ten Hag didn't like the strategy, which is why it's not being implemented, why appoint Ten Hag? It's a waste of time having Ranić in a consultancy sense if he didn't leave anything. But I think he got so overwhelmed by the football club that all he could do was firefight on a football sense, which is why there's no handover, no strategy. So Manchester United are perpetually taking one step forward, two steps back, one step forward, two steps back. And if you replace that metaphor with league positions, then over the next 10 years, they'll find themselves eighth, ninth, tenth, unless they improve. And the problem is everything. It's the spending. It's the fact a manager isn't backed. It's Ronaldo overshadowing the dressing room. It's the fact the owners are not realizing that strategically the club is foundationally rotten to their entire core. And we all laugh about it, but there's a sad aspect to it. And it struck me the other day that rich owners in the past were vanity led. They bought to show off a business. They funded, and then from a very distant position, they watched their money buy them success. Examples, Roman Abramovich at Chelsea, the Glazers hoped for it at Manchester United. And you say to yourself, okay, then I think that football evolved and the new style of owner now isn't vanity to buy, be distant and watch the money have success. It's actually vanity to be hands-on in the business. And that's where I think it's really changed, that the vanity is not in buying and spending. The vanity is in buying and almost developing a celebrity culture from it. And I think that that vanity means that you're accountable. That vanity means you're running your business. That vanity means you have to connect with the fan base. You have to connect with the footballers. So you look at Amanda Staverly, and she's there, hands-on, being a face, being a celebrity. I'm not saying she's there because she wants the celebrity-ness, but I'm saying she's there with an appreciation that success comes from being visible, from being accountable, and from having a connection that you then celebrate and dine off. And let's be honest, it's working at Newcastle. Bowley's the same at Chelsea. And unless the Glazers get off their asses effectively and come down to boardroom level and have some serious, meaningful meetings and then put themselves in front of the fan base and put themselves in front of the manager and put themselves in front of the player, then Manchester United will only move in one direction. And unfortunately, from a Manchester United perspective, that is backwards. And then with Neymar, I think he'll stay at PSG. He wants to stay at PSG and he's had a good start to the season. Mm, OK, and Neymar, uh, he's been linked with Newcastle as well, just another one of those players. <laughs> and uh, I think that's why Tom keeps asking, the, he keeps asking the question anyway. Um, if you were a betting man, says Michael, that's the second time you've been asked that tonight, uh, oh, who yeah. would you put your money on being the first manager to lose or uh, leave his job this season in the Premier League? Oh, yeah. That is Brendan Rodgers in there. I think he has to be, yeah. The funny thing is, if I was just judging teams on where they're heading, I would have said Bruno Larger, but due to how little time he's had at the club and Wolves are really patient and there's a whole recruitment strategy there, I honestly think he's pretty safe, if I'm perfectly honest with you. So that takes him out of the equation for me. Um, I think that Brendan Rodgers could easily get the um, axe, if I'm 100% honest with you. And that's a really sad, sad thing for me to say, 
but Leicester's a mess. And if they fail to get the names that they want, and also if they don't show Rogers almost that the club is moving in the right direction, who's to say he would just won't jump ship? Um, but that said, I think that that is about the politics at Leicester and might be a slow burner. So if I was a betting man, I would rather say Rogers might not be there at the end of the season than he'll be the first to go. Uh, the sad indictment is that um, if you go based on odds, Eric Ten Hag is quite high up there as well, which is absolutely incredible. Uh, but if I had my actual £10, uh, rather than talking about who might go at some point during the season, uh, it would be on Ralph Hasenhutl, because I think that uh, Southampton have tried that style. It can be very attractive at times. Uh, they don't have Broya. Che Adams might not stay. They're not scoring a lot of goals. They drop a heck of a lot of points from winning positions. If they get themselves into a mess early in the season, I, I think Saints might have to call it a day with Hassan Hootel and he could be the first to go. OK, uh, Ben, just try, um, he says, evening everyone, Ben, does trying to pay transfer fees in instalments over a number of years reduce the chances of a transfer actually happening? Seems to be happening in tune, he says. Not necessarily. The structure of the deal is always really important and clubs that are buying, if their finances are tighter, want to pay transfers and installments because then you can offset them over the years and the cycles that they're paid. And therefore, when you talk about big money transfers like Leicester selling to Chelsea, 85 million potentially for Wesley Fafana, it uh, doesn't mean that it's 85 million paid because some of it's add-ons that may never be paid and uh, it's not all in one installment. Of course, when you're trying to buy a player, you, if you really want them, have to give preferential terms where a large amount of the money is up front. That, that helps your cause. And that's why I've always said many, many times, don't look at the number, which fans always do, look at the structure as well, if that structure is readily available and the media are reporting on it. Because if you want James Madison you might say 60 million. But if that 60 million is in four installments and 50 million of it is the fee and 10 million of it will only be paid if Newcastle United qualify for the Champions League this season, then Leicester look at that as 50 million divided by four. And it's not that preferential. If you offer Leicester 45 million, but you say 45 million is in one installment, and then we're going to give you 5 million in add-ons on top if he plays 15 games for the club, Leicester are saying we're going to get the full amount and we're going to get a lot of money up front that we can spend on a replacement. So that is less money, but it's a much, much better deal. And that's really important to look at. So I think that more patient clubs with healthier finances that want a steady stream of income will take the instalments in more staggered terms. And the other thing is, if you do mutual business, which again is why Newcastle-Chelsea relationship can be key at times, uh, you want to be able to scratch each other's back. So you might say, well, we'll give you that on a four-year payment because we know that you're going to give us this player on a four-year payment. And then both clubs have got a constant stream of income and it's mutually beneficial. So the installments itself don't set a deal back per se. But of course, if you desperately want someone paying more money up front is going to help your cause. But I say again, structure is always as important as number. 
Mm, okay, great show. Uh, we the Borough hold the title for the last Northeast team to win a cup final, but I can see Newcastle claiming that scalp soon. Uh, thanks for joining in, Lee. Uh, we haven't changed the schedule, no, uh, Mr. Anderson. Holidays, though, during the summer changed the schedule. I was away last week. Uh, Ross Gregory's away for a couple of weeks, so we'll just move people around and, and fixtures, football, work, life. Sometimes we all have to do different things at different times. So apologies if it screwed up your week, uh, but Ben has <laughs> kindly agreed to do the next two Tuesdays, uh, but the rest of the week is as it should be. Last question, where do you think uh, James Ward-Prowse will end up, says Tom? I'm just not sure that Southampton are going to sell in the next 16 days. They can't have that exodus of players. And with Broya leaving off his loan deal, they've already lost goals and there's Prowse, who's the sort of focal point of that team. So it's tricky. And unless the player himself really, really forces an exit, he'll be there come the end of the window. So you're looking at long term. And then once you're looking at long term, your guess is as good as mine because Newcastle like him, but only in a very speculative sense. Under the old regime, by the way, I'm not aware of Dan Ashworth kind of going in with any significant interest. Spurs love the player. Chelsea, under the old regime, looked at James Ward-Prowse. Dortmund really liked the player. Inter really liked the player and made a serious inquiry, by the way, at the beginning of the window, as well as I understand it. So that's the volume, and I'm sure the list is endless. So unless anyone makes a dramatic swoop um, and got player power to kind of try and force a move. I don't think he goes anywhere. I'd be very surprised anyway at the end of this window because Southampton just can't afford to lose a star. Otherwise, for me, they're goners. Yeah, and the last question, I'll take this one. Um, I'm happy with it so far, but there's still plenty of time to go. Newcastle United, I feel, will still bring in another couple and there will be more go. So watch this space. I think it's going to be an exciting end to the window. Ben, I will see you next Tuesday, mate. I uh, hope we get a chance to have a, a cup of tea and a bit of relax, mate. You've had a busy day. Take care. Hey, cheers and have a good week, everyone. Thanks.